Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 1st of June 2023. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you doing, mate? We're looking forward to hearing your June sky guide. Please tell us what's up in the sky for the month of June. Okay. Well, lots of interesting things are up in the sky for the month of June. Venus is the most obvious prominent planet at the moment. It's been slowly getting higher in the sky and now it's blazing in the western skies till well after it becomes dark. Mars is still uh, prominent, but it's a fraction of its former self. Then Mercury has been giving us a good view in the morning skies and slowly drop from view by mid-month and then will return to the evening skies next month. Saturn is quite high in the morning skies, but by the mid-month, you'll be able to see it in the evening skies. Jupiter is quite prominent with Mercury below it at the beginning of the month. So we'll start off with, as always, the moon. Interestingly, on June the 3rd, the bright star Delta Scorpius in the head of the scorpion is going to be occulted by the moon in the early evening before nautical twilight. So the moon will cover Delta Scorpius. Yeah, quite a bright and obvious star. It's not as tall as but it's going to be relatively low to the horizon. So it's, uh, getting your telescopes down to that level and not having anything in the way can be quite difficult. But when it pops out again on the other side of the moon an hour later, it should be quite visible in binoculars. And when it comes out 30 minutes after sunset, vertical twilight is an hour after sunset. If you start looking at the moon and, uh, and Delta Scorpio about three quarters of an hour after sunset, you should be able to see them quite easily. Uh, obviously, Delta Scorpio is, is the bright star uh, right next to the moon, and you can see them inch towards each other or millimetre towards each other, seeing as we're in a um, 
a decimal world and watch it disappear quite nicely. And of course, Del Scorpio reappearing, it's kind of obvious where the moon is. But again, because the timing will be different in every state, I won't give you exact timings here. I'll uh, put up a blog post with the exact timings later on. After that, of course, June the 4th is the full moon, which will wash out all the uh, nice clusters and nebula. June the 11th is the last quarter moon. That is the ideal for stargazing in the evening. Uh, well, you'll see everything quite bright. By June the 18th, it's new moon. Again, this is ideal for stargazing. June 26th is the first quarter moon, and the moon will be a perigee on June the 7th and an apogee on June the 23rd. Now, how do we dealt with the perigenations of the moon? Let's go to the evening sky. I've already told you that Venus is now incredibly prominent and is easily visible from uh, shortly over an hour after astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark. So it, it's really easy to see. It's, it's, it's greatest distance from the sun on the 4th, but still remains high in the evening sky for the rest of the month. In the coming months, it'll start falling back towards the horizon. But Venus also increases in brilliance, and it goes from a half-moon shape in telescopes to a clear crescent shape in telescopes. Sadly, Venus is directly behind a really big tree in our backyard, so I haven't been able to get the telescope on it. Oh. Now, Venus being incredibly prominent, uh, it has uh, two notable encounters this month. From the 13th to the 14th, Venus skims past the open cluster M44, also known as the Beehive Cluster. And this will look very excellent in binoculars. The Beehive Cluster might be a little bit uh, dimmed out by brilliant Venus, but it's still worthwhile having a look. The Beehive Cluster are uh, also important for Mars, as we come to see in a few moments. Venus also is coming closer to Mars, but never quite catches up to it. However, there's a really nice view on the 22nd when Venus, Mars, and the crescent moon form an attractive triangle. The day before this, on the 21st, the trio form a line, and again on the 23rd after that, the trio form a line will look very nice in the evening twilight. We'll have well past twilight. So Mars, again, uh, it's a, a faded spark of what it was but it's still one of the brightest objects in the sky and relatively easy to see although you're going to have a hard time pointing pointing it out as being a a star it just looks like a, a planet that just looks like an ordinary bright star so it passes through the constellation of cancer and enters leo late in the month but uh, it starts off quite nicely. The, on the first Mars, on the outskirts, the Beehive Cluster M44. If you've been looking with, uh, before this, it's uh, actually uh, within binocular distance of M44 as we speak. Right, of course, like, uh, unlike me, you don't have cloud covering everything. And then on the second and the third, Mars is in actually the heart of the Beehive Cluster. This will be really good in binoculars and telescopes and should be able to also see it okay in uh, dark sky locations where you can see the Beehive Cluster with your unaided eye. Now, the Beehive Cluster is a, uh, a very nice sprinkling of um, moderately bright stars, at least binoculars, 
So this will look particularly spectacular because Mars is bright, but not so bright it will drown out the stars of the beehive cluster. So you should get some nice views. And if you're trying your hand at astrophotography, that would be a good chance to be able to see something quite nice. Yep. Now, as I said, on the 22nd, Venus and Mars and the crescent moon form an attractive triangle. And, of course, before and after, you've got the lineup. So Earth is at solstice on the 22nd, and the day is the shortest. And after this, the days will begin to get longer as we uh, head out of uh, winter into summer. But at the moment, it's very definitely winter. Oh, yeah. The morning sky is, again, where most of the action is happening. Mercury is still prominent in the morning sky below Jupiter. The pair look very nice. That's very easy to see an hour before sunrise. As the month wears on, Mercury heads down towards the horizon and is lost in the twilight from, yeah, from about mid-month. Saturn, of course, is very high in the morning skies and becomes visible in the late evening sky, although it's going to remain best in the morning skies. On the 10th, Saturn is near the waning moon in the morning skies. Uh, if you're having trouble working out which bright golden object is Saturn, it's going to be very easy to, to pick up on the 10th when Saturn is, is near the, the waning moon. It's going to be the brightest thing near the moon. Jupiter, as I said, has been climbing higher, and it and the pair of Mercury look very nice, but Jupiter will continue to climb. On the 14th, Jupiter will be five degrees from the waning crescent moon, but Mercury will be too low for the moon to be make an interesting pattern with it. Now, onto the stars. The sky will be very nicely dark, and uh, winter is a good time for seeing clusters. Scorpius the scorpion is now very easily seen in the east when the sky is fully dark. Uh, and again, you've probably, uh, if you've been looking at the uh, occultation of Delta Scorpii, you'll have a good idea of which curling like object is uh, Scorpius the scorpion. At the moment, it's almost parallel to the horizon. And we have a comet in the sky, comet uh, C slash 2021P411. Currently, it's right next to uh, Beta Ceti the, in, the, in the constellation of the whale. Uh, unfortunately, it's magnitude 11, so unless you've got a decent uh, telescope, you're not going to see anything. By the end of the month, uh, it'll be the, in the undistinguished constellation of Sculptor uh, and just visible in strong binoculars. But in next month, uh, it will be uh, passing through Phoenix uh, and the uh, and get, us, uh, get uh easily visible in binoculars. But just a heads up for what's coming up. Very good. And do you have a tangent for us for this month, Ian? I do indeed. Well, following on from, uh, from the uh, Comet Lemon, uh, and I know we're all eagerly awaiting the arrival of Comet C slash 2023 A3 to, to Ishishan Atlas, because if it all goes well, we'll have a truly bright comet facing our evening skies in mid-October 2024. But as we know from bitter experience, comets will do as they please, and it's just as likely to fizzle or break up as it approaches the sun. Yes, I'm looking at you, Comet Leonid. So Comet C-2023A3 comes from the Oort cloud, 
a distant shell of icy bodies orbiting far from the Earth at the very edges of interstellar space. So you may ask yourself, if comets can come from the edge of interstellar space, can they come from interstellar space itself? Well, the answer to this is actually yes. We've had uh, two interstellar visitors uh, quite close together, I1 slash Umamama and I2 Borisov. I slash Umamama was picked up on its way out of the solar system and excited interest because it appeared to speed up as it left the solar system. More that can be accounted for for the gravitational slingshot effect. And I1 uh, was a um, unusual cigar-shaped object about 800 metres long, which isn't very big, and with a unusually flattened shape. So one of the reasons why it could have sped up was radiation pressure. And the astronomer, astronomer Abraham Loeb suggested that I1 was in fact a solar sail, an alien artifact cruising past the Earth. So such a solar sail would be incredibly thin and reflective. However, based on the measure measure reflectivity, uh, the preferred composition is more likely a slab of nitrogen ice, like a chunk of Pluto. Now, of course, being a solar sail is not such an outlandish idea. Humans have been exploring sending solar sails by other systems. But given the measure of reflectivity, that's probably not an explanation. However, there was another proposal for alien artifacts entering our solar system. So those of you who are science fiction aficionados will know back in 1937, science fiction writer Olaf Stapleton published his classic novel, Star Maker, which he imagined the use of a technologically manufactured shell of matter to tap the energy output of a host star. So this concept was subsequently formalised by Freeman Dyson, and these so-called Dyson spheres would emit uh, radiation to balance the heat deposited on light and sunlight. Now, we have been searching for Dyson sphere heat signatures for some time now, but haven't found any. It doesn't mean they're not out there, it's just that they're probably not common and quite far away. So this brings us back to Abraham Lowe of the star sail for I1. He suggested Dyson spheres may be the sorts of material that can have the shape and satellite characteristics of I1. So he says that Dyson spheres would require significant maintenance and that fragments of Dyson spheres spalled off by asteroid impact or other damage would escape such a system more easily than uh, asteroids or comets from a standard solar system. Now, of course, you can immediately see two uh, factors that make this problematic. First is that to build a Dyson sphere, you have to sweep up all the available matter in the solar system and take apart every single planet well, to construct it. But everything now substantial is part of the sphere, so there's no leftover asteroids to ram into one. Of course, there's the occasional interstellar asteroid, but probably this that's uh, making it a little bit too unlikely. Now, Loeb also thought that uh, ordinary dust levels, the kind of dust, uh, interplanetary dust, not big chunky things, uh, would eventually erode the Dyson sphere. And a billion years after the star Dyson sphere had been abandoned for whatever reason, they would start unraveling. So it's entirely, it's still possible that an unraveling Dyson sphere could uh, generate chunks of things which would look like I1. 
Now, given that we haven't found any ionostrogen signals in the Dyson spheres, the number of abandoned Dyson spheres is probably very low. So, given that we that the probability that we will see a fragment of Dyson sphere at the same time as there are intelligent beings on our planet to check it out, it is probably a little bit low. So, uh, I, I think Dyson spheres. Uh, or dying Dyson spheres is probably not a likely source of I1 objects. However, a, a recent paper suggests a more simpler solution. So if I1 is a spalled-off slab of nitrogen ice from Pluto-like exoplanet, yes, I said planet, don't come at me, then a simpler explanation may be outgassing of hydrogen. Like you said, you just said it's made of nitrogen. We'll come to that in a moment. Now, as I1 had no apparent tail, unlike I2 Borisov, which had an observable tail, outgassing was not thought to be involved in its acceleration. Now, a slab of Pluto-like surface, even if it was mostly nitrogen, will have some water in it. In fact, on the, some of the mountains on Pluto are thought to be water, water ice mountains in a, in, uh, in a sea of uh, nitrogen ice. Now, after eons drifting into stellar space, cosmic radiation will break this water up into oxygen and hydrogen, and the hydrogen will be trapped in the micro pockets in the nitrogen ice. So, as I1 approaches our sun and the ice warms, its structure rearranges, the pockets collapse, and channels form within the ice, allowing the trapped hydrogen gas to escape. But because of the porous nature of the uh, nitrogen ice, the outgassing of hydrogen from these channels will not lift a significant amount of dust off. So unlike a, a Borisov uh, or an ordinary comet, you won't be able to see a cometary tail, just this gentle outgassing of hydrogen. Now, again, this is a nice tail, but and we don't have direct evidence for it. So uh, in order to confirm the possible, We'd need to observe comets of a similar size to I1 from our own system, or probably from uh, the outer uh, reaches of the solar system, where other ices predominate rather than the water ice that uh, closer in uh, comets uh, have. And we probably need the JWST to pick these up and pick up hydrogen outgassing. Now, okay. Slabs of uh, nitrogen ice being cooked by cosmic rays are a tad less exotic than disintegrating Dyson spheres. They still represent an intriguing visitor from the outer dark. So while we're waiting for more really weird uh, visitors, we'll have to settle for boring normal comets and hopefully the boring normal comet 2023A3 will give us a beautiful rooster tail in the evening skies come October 2024. Fantastic. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. But uh, it would be interesting to see. We, we, we saw two interstellar visitors who come past very soon, one after the other. And uh, we haven't seen another one since. But, you know, let's hope we can see, we can see another one. Awesome. Now, before we do our sign-offs, can we just revisit something, Ian? Yeah, sure. You were speaking a fair few times about using binoculars and binocular views. 
What's the best way to hold your binoculars steady when you want to observe a planet or a comet or an asteroid or a cluster? What's the best way to use binoculars? The best way to use binoculars depends on exactly how comfortable you want to be. Now, I have a a camera tripod and an adapter for the camera tripod, which I can use to screw onto my binoculars. My binoculars are relatively new and and actually have a screw point so you can screw this adapter in and have the binoculars steady on this tripod, which is really good if you're looking at things that are not too far above the horizon. If you've been looking at some of the photographs I've been posting in uh, Facebook, a lot of those, the um, uh, Venus and Moon photos, for example, are taken with, uh, with my, me holding the camera up to the binoculars on the tripod. However, if the, uh, if the uh, object is very high above the horizon, uh, the, it's very hard to get a look in. The tripod gets in the way and you find yourself groobling around in your knees. Alternatively, you find something to prop your elbows up on because if you've got a decent pair of binoculars, they're, they're, they're pretty weighty and holding them still can be quite difficult. It's not such a big problem if you're just generally scanning around and you get the impression of stars and nebula. But if you want to look at something in detail, like, for example, you want to look at, at the moons of Jupiter, you need something stable. So the tripod's really good. Otherwise... I use fences, I've used telecom switch boxes and things like that, uh, which are, and their advantage is you don't have to take anything with you, you can just rock up and there's something that you can stick your elbows on and hold your, uh, hold your binoculars. If it's really high in the sky, I find that simply uh, getting, some, getting on a banana lounge and using the uh, armrests of the lounge to stabilise your arms while you're looking up works really well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Another great month to look forward to. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about these wonderful skies, and uh, uh, hopefully everyone will get to see something amazing this month. Awesome. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. You have a good night. We'll catch you all later. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored. And in two weeks' time, we're bringing you an in-depth interview with Dr. Yessi van der Sand from the University of Sydney's Institute for Astronomy. And Yessi is unravelling some of the great mysteries of our Milky Way galaxy and causing rewriting of the astronomy textbooks. Till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.